with uh, cell growth and particularly metabolism. So you're going to get to go back over aerobic cell respiration again, which maybe this time through it will make some sense. Uh, that's one of those things that's really a little bit tough to, uh, to get for some folks. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the things that, that we'll be doing. We'll also be looking at fermentation. Uh, and we're going to be looking at what are nutrients that are required by a prokaryotic cell for growth? What do they have to have? Right? So, uh, this should be repeat from anatomy here, uh, pretty much. All of metabolism is one of two kinds. There's either a catabolic reaction here, and catabolism always means that you're breaking something down. Something that's complex is being broken down into something simpler. <coughs> Often, the energy that results from, the, from breaking those bonds is used to, uh, to make uh, ATP because cells, and that includes prokaryotic, cannot deal without ATP. Uh, cells, no life forms, no real life forms that we know of cannot can function without any ATP at all. Now, there are some bacteria that don't make their own ATP. They are totally unable. So they survive by getting inside other cells that are doing it and stealing it. Okay? Uh, but that's not the norm. Right? Now, if you remember from thermodynamics, or you probably it wasn't called that, it was probably called the energy laws from well, biology 101. Every time you transfer energy from one form to another, a fairly large amount of it gets converted to heat, which is why your metabolism keeps you warm. Or helps keep you warm. Um, when it's really warm out, it makes you feel really hot and miserable. Uh, that's your metabolism working, and you're, you're generating heat. Okay, that's part of what, what happens with that. And in fact, the efficiency is really rather poor. Uh, but it's the only game in town, so it doesn't do much. Okay, this energy then can be used to take precursor molecules, small molecules that, are, that the cell has either taken in or has broken down bigger molecules to get. For instance, sometimes cells will break down uh, proteins to get amino acids if they're short on certain amino acids. Um, and you're then used to build larger molecules and structures in the cell. And that half of metabolism is called anabolism. Okay. Now, once the energy is used, that ATP is no longer ATP, that energy is now gone, and we cycle this back to the catabolism and pick up more energy to make more ATP. And so this is a cycle right here that ATP goes through. It's used over and over. And ATP is just a nucleotide. It's a denizen, okay? It's, it's just like the adenine that you find in DNA. It's the same basic stuff, except it has three phosphates when it's fully formed and fewer than three. Uh, we always talk about ADP, which is, means diphosphate. There's also a monophosphate form. Uh, you would have should have talked about that a little bit in anatomy when you talked about uh, uh, signals arriving on the, uh, probably in the chapter on uh, the endocrine system, where you talked about signals arriving on the membrane and then activating second messengers inside. Uh, touched on that. Okay. Um, and all of the, the end result of all of this, other than using up a whole lot of energy, is that the cell can get larger, and can get large enough till it gets to the point where it can then divide into 
cells, and then those are going to go through the same process. And, and that's basically how prokaryotic life exists. Okay? Now, there's a variety of ways to get their energy. We'll get into that more in a little bit later, probably next class. And there are, because there are two things that the cell must gain from outside of itself. It's going to have to gain carbon atoms, okay, and, and some, by some method, okay, because those four macromolecules all are carbon-based molecules. That's why we're carbon-based life forms. Carbon is the backbone of all of those large, important molecules like proteins and nucleic acids and you know, so on. So you have to have a source of carbon. Okay, we'll get into what those sources are in another little section of this. The second thing you have to have is a source of energy, because there's no living thing can continue to survive without a source of energy. Okay? There is no energy, everything stops. And that means it's dead, pretty much. Okay? All right, so overview here of metabolism. <coughs> Now, one form of this metabolism that we will mention as we go through this section, some of the basic reactions are oxidation and reduction reactions. And I don't know, again, I don't know how much they talked about these in, in uh, anatomy. Uh, they're often referred to as redox reactions. Uh, and basically what they are is the transfer of electrons from one molecule to another. Okay, so. Reduction, oxidation. They are usually coupled in what are referred to as redox reactions. Okay, now, in uh, oxidation is always the transfer or the loss of electro of an electron or maybe more than one from a molecule. Okay, so here's a diagram. One of these will be an electron donor. When this electron moves, this molecule has been oxidized. It has lost an electron. But electrons are never found wandering around out there all by themselves. Electrons are going to grab onto something really, really fast. They are not happy when they're alone. Okay? And so they're going to attach to some other molecule. And we say that that molecule has now been reduced. So every time you have an oxidation, there will be a reduction with it. That electron's going somewhere. It's not just going to, but it'll want it'll attach to anything it can find. Okay? And so we have these pairs of reactions here where there's an oxidation because we lost an electron. This is the oxidation, the loss of the electron. This is the reduction, which is the gain of an electron. Not very intuitive in terms of making sense because you think, well, if I gain an electron, why am I but it has to do with uh, the chemistry of, of the molecules and, uh, and electron potentials. Okay. I won't get into details of that. All right, now, so cells use uh, these electrons often as a way of, of transferring energy from one molecule to another. But you can't just turn them loose. Okay? It would be like going to a preschool and opening the door and telling the little kids, just go, go, go. You don't know where they're going. You know, they're going to go all over the place. Uh, if you ever watch a preschool group that's on a field trip, there's almost more chaperones than kids you know, because you've got to keep an eye on them. Right? Well, electrons are just like that. 
If you just turn them loose, they're going to go out and get in trouble. They're not going to go where you want them to go. So we have electron carriers whose sole function is to grab electrons and take them to where the cell wants them to go and then release them at that location. And these, uh, you should have mentioned these, I think. Uh, NAD is one of them. FAD is another. These are the names. You don't need to know the long names. It's NAD and FAD. This one is also an electron carrier, but this is found almost exclusively in photosynthesis. And we are not going to focus on photosynthesis here, so you don't need to worry too much. Now, both of these are B vitamin derivatives. In other words, B vitamins are used to produce them. So when somebody is not getting enough, has a B vitamin deficiency, one of the common symptoms is tiredness, lethargic. And then part of that comes from the fact that you have a shortage of electron carriers and you can't make ATP as fast. All right, so this is the common redox reaction. Now, so organisms basically release energy from nutrients by catabolism. When we look at this, we'll see that often what we're doing is releasing electrons, and then we have to grab them with our carriers. I often refer to them as the bus. The electron jumps off, there's a bus to wait to pick it up. Carries it to where it wants, where it needs to go, lets it off, okay? And then the bus goes back gets another one, or two. Usually they, they're, they're transferring a couple at a time. And so and it's like a shuttle bus. It's going back and forth. It's picking up electrons, taking them over here, going back, picking up more, taking them over here, back and forth. Okay. Now, uh, when you release energy from your nutrients by catabolism, by breaking them down, breaking chemical bonds, we can store that energy in what is, uh, my, my organic chemistry professor would just die uh, high energy phosphate bonds. Okay, that's what ATP is described as having. It's a high energy phosphate bond. Now, the reality is there's no such thing as a high energy phosphate bond, but it has to do with resonance structures. I don't know how many of you have taken up. Anybody here taken organic? Probably not. Okay, it has to do with resonance structures. Uh, and, and the number of places that electron can move around in there, which makes it not want to let go of it. And it takes a lot of energy to, to, uh, to, to put it in there, and it, takes, and it releases a lot of energy when it leaves. Uh, but in biology, they're typically referred to as high-energy bonds. Okay. Uh, there are three ways I can make those bonds. One is called substrate level. Uh, that's, that means I don't need anything special I don't need any of those electron carriers. I, I, I've <coughs> broken something. I have enough energy there. I can make the ATP right there, substrate level. Okay, that's not much ATP is made that way in the cell. Very little of it. We have oxidative phosphorylation. Nice big term. Okay, obviously involves oxidation, and if there's an oxidation, there's also going to be a reduction, and that's the electron transport chain in cell respiration. We're transferring electrons from one molecule to another, using their energy to make a, a proton gradient, which is then used to make ATP, phosphorylate ADP to make ATP. Oxidative, using that energy to add a phosphate to ADP. Okay. And that's how most of your ATP is made. 
Unless, of course, you're an anaerobic critter, in which case you don't, obviously, don't do that. Okay. Now, we have to have, uh, almost all organisms that do that have to have oxygen. Because when the electron gets down to the end of that chain, it's got to go somewhere. <laughs> it can't just stay there because then it backs up like a dam, you know. And then you stop making ATP. That's never good. Okay. So somebody's got to grab that electron when it's all done, and we're not going to do anything more with it, and take it away. And that's what, why we breathe. We need to have oxygen to do that. Oxygen is the final electron acceptor. If I take an oxygen atom and I add two extra electrons to it, it gets two negative charge, charges on it. It's got two extra electrons. And those will attract two hydrogen ions, which are positive, And I will have water, H2O. Okay. So that's how most of it is made. Again, photophosphorylation is the use of light energy to do this. And we're not going to go into that because that's, again, a, a plant thing, okay, which we're not particularly interested in doing. And then that ATP that you've made, you can transfer a phosphate from the ATP to another molecule, and that transfers energy. It can then be used to build larger molecules or to do work okay? like in your muscle fibers. Remember the myosin? Remember all that? Myosin, what was the other protein? The thick fibers, the thin fibers? Actin, the actin ring a bell, actin myosin. The little myosin heads reached up like golf clubs and grabbed on, and then, uh, and then uh, when the ATP attached, when the ATP, uh, and then they rotated. When the ATP let go, they went back like a spring attached, but on ATP, again, when they, uh, they rotate, ATP breaks, it goes back. Okay, remember, that's how, what made the little fibers in the plant muscle. It's using ATP. All right, now, here's one of our problems. Now, all of you have taken some kind of chemistry, most likely. When most chemistry uh, lab experiments, to get a chemical reaction to occur, what do you usually have to do to your reagents to the, the substances you want to have a react you want to react right you can use a catalyst but in the chem lab what do you often end up doing to them instead of using a catalyst heat them yeah put them over a, a burner of some kind and, and the, here, the, the reason is that uh, Molecules are in constant random motion. All molecules are in constant random motion. That's how we measure temperature. The temperature of the air of all the molecules in the air in here are they're in motion. When you take the air temperature in here, you're measuring the average kinetic energy of those molecules. Okay, the molecules in this table are in constant random motion. They're not going very far. They're just kind of vibrating, but they're still moving. All right. So inside cells, which have are mostly water. Molecules are moving around in that fluid. And when they bump into each other, there's the opportunity for a reaction if they if they match. They're the right molecules. Most of the time, they don't have enough energy. They don't, nothing happens. Now, in the chem lab, you can put a Bunsen burner under it and boil the heck out of it. Okay? And you can make them react because you give them enough energy that when they bump into each other, there's enough energy there. You can't do that in cells. That's not going to work. And so we have enzymes.
that lower the amount of energy required to make two molecules react. That's their function. So if you control which enzymes are present, you control which chemical reactions are occurring in the cell. And where are the instructions for building the enzymes stored? Okay, if I want to know how to make a protein, where do I find out? The in the DNA, in the nucleus, right. So that's how the nucleus regulates activities of the cell, by which proteins it makes messenger RNA for, which then get converted into proteins. Some of those are structural proteins. Some of those are enzymes. Enzymes don't last forever. And so if I have a reaction that I want to continue going on on a regular basis, I have to keep making more enzymes. Because when I stop, eventually those enzymes are going to degrade and the process will stop. Okay, so enzymes have a, their lifespan varies with the organism. Our enzymes tend to last hours. In a bacterium like E. coli, most enzymes function for five to ten minutes, and then they're degraded and no longer, no longer useful. So if the cell wants to keep doing that, it has to keep making more enzymes. Okay? So we increase the likelihood that there's going to be a reaction. You don't need to memorize this at all. Some of you might be interested. Uh, <coughs> these are just different types of, of uh, enzymes. Uh, and uh, you can look through those. You'll notice all of them end in ASE. So any of these molecules that ends in ASE is, is usually an enzyme. Okay, and I'm not going to go into all those uh, different types. That's that's not really what we're interested in here. Uh, now, when your the DNA spits out a messenger RNA molecule that goes to the ribosome, and I make my enzyme, sometimes that's all I need to do. Sometimes, as soon as that enzyme is produced. It's ready to go, right, like that. Many enzymes, however, are produced in an inactive form, and something else has to attach to them before they can become active. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, sometimes these are uh, ions. Sometimes they are uh, elements. Uh, like, in of cell respiration there is an enzyme that requires magnesium as a cofactor. If there's no magnesium there, the enzyme's not in the proper shape, it won't work, and you can't do aerobic respiration. Okay, that's an example. So that enzyme is produced, but it can't work until it adds a magnesium atom into it. Okay, uh, so when they are complete, have all their parts, they're called holoenzymes. That might be easy to remember. Don't put, when they're not ready, they're, when they're inactive, they're called haploenzymes. I don't care if you memorize that term. Now, this one's pretty easy to remember. It's a whole enzyme that's ready to, to work. Okay. And interesting enough, we have for years thought that only proteins could be enzymes, but we now know that RNA can function as an enzyme in some instances. RNA has many functions. Which is probably not surprising since it is pretty well considered today that first life was an RNA based life, first life forms. DNA came later. Okay, now, and so here is 
the blue here is the incomplete enzyme. Here is an organic molecule that's attached to it. That's called a coenzyme. Okay, so some of your vitamins act as coenzymes. Uh, without those vitamins, then the uh, uh, you know they're they're small organic molecules <coughs> that are needed to activate the enzyme. If it's an inorganic thing like magnesium or copper or there are a number of those, uh, then we call it a cofactor. No reason, just follows. Cofactors are inorganic. Coenzymes are organic. That's this is the difference. And what's the difference between inorganic and organic when we're talking about this thing? Organic molecules are carbon-based molecules. The only carbon-based molecules that are not considered to be organic are carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, methane. And methane is the Anything else that has carbon in it is usually considered to be an organic molecule. And that's the way chemistry has traditionally been divided between the chemistry of things that don't contain carbon and the chemistry of things that do, inorganic chemistry and organic chemistry. Traditionally the way it's been done. Now, what's important when all of these get attached is there's this active site which has a specific three-dimensional shape that will exactly match a three-dimensional shape on the substrate that it's supposed to work on. And that way, when they bump into each other, this will allow a reaction to occur and lower energy So we can do chemical reactions without having to have little bunch of burners in all the cells. These are a bunch of those. So I had you know, magnesium. Uh, NAD is, a, uh, is considered to be a coenzyme. Uh, Tetrahydrofolate, okay, folic acid. You know, everybody knows you're supposed to have folic acid. It's one, okay. Um, that comes from, uh, and then you have riboflavin. Okay, uh, folic acid. This is folic acid. Folic acid is used in the synthesis of nucleotides. If you have a shortage of folic acid, then you you don't make nucleotides for the should. Okay. Coenzyme A. This is in the Krebs cycle, which we'll talk about later. Uh, Thiamine pyrophosphate, this is used, well, we, we don't need to get into the details, but that's really beyond, beyond us. This is a, a list of just a few of them, not very expensive. Now, so here's what really what is going on with an enzyme. The reactants need this much energy to interact. And in the chem lab, you can make that happen. Inside the cell, most of them will not have that much energy. Therefore, I'll get very few reactions. When I have an enzyme present, they only need this much energy to react. So enzymes function by lowering what is called the activation energy of the reaction. Lower, lower activation energy, they can continue on to this normal reaction. And that's why enzymes are so important. And the three and enzymes have to have a specific three-dimensional shape to be active. If you change the pH, their shape begins to change. If you change the temperature, their shape begins to change. Hence, homeostasis is critical to their function. Okay. Uh, so this is just an example uh, here. 
Uh, substrate, enzyme, these two fit. Uh, it's kind of molds around it. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this, but this is just another example. Uh, this is part of the glycolysis here. This is, an, this is uh, the first thing that glucose is made into. It attaches to this enzyme, splits it apart into two, three carbon pieces, which end up becoming ultimately, uh, well, these would have well, eventually become pyruvate. And then once these are released, the enzyme goes back and does it again. So enzymes are used over and over and over. And the reaction rates for these that have been measured are sometimes in the, in the thousands of reactions per second, okay, which is just as kind of incredible. How could anything be going that fast? But remember, you're down there on a molecular atomic level. Everything's right there. Everything pulses. You know, things happen at a different pace than what we're used to. Doing. So what influences it? Okay, I mentioned temperature. Uh, pH influences it because the pH will change the way the enzyme, the protein, folds. Uh, you can have inhibitors. There are actually inhibitors that block enzyme function. Okay, some of these are naturally occurring because they, uh, the cell uses them to control the reactions. Some of them are found in the environment and we would consider them to be poisons. Okay, uh, cyanide is a, an enzyme inhibitor. It blocks the transfer of electrons to oxygen in the, at the end of the electron transport chain. If, and then it all backs up, we stop making ATP. It's just that simple. Okay, it's an enzyme inhibitor. Plants actually make a large quantity of different enzyme inhibitors to try to inhibit being eaten by insects. And that's why there are many plant parts that are poisonous. Now, peach pits are poisonous. Um, the stems and leaves of tomato plants are poisonous. We don't eat that part, we just eat the fruit. But that part is, is, is actually poisonous to us, anyway. Not to the, not to the tomato hormone caterpillar, it just grazes away on there, it doesn't seem to care, okay? Um, the uh, milkweed makes a compound that interferes <coughs> with heart function. Except monarch butterfly caterpillars just, again, just eat that like crazy. And then when they metamorphose into the butterfly, the butterfly contains it. Okay? And this protects them from predators, birds particularly. Uh, if you take a, a bl young blue jay that has never seen a, a monarch butterfly before, it'll gobble it down like crap. Right? That's food, right? And then it'll spit it back up. It'll foam at the mouth. And it won't die. It'll be okay. But it will never touch another monarch butterfly. So you may sacrifice a few in the process, but then you save all the rest, you know, after that. Because that, that blue jay is not, not going to touch another one after that experience. That's part of what, and then where did the insect get that stuff? It got it from the plant. And the plant yet makes it to inhibit other things from eating it. But there are certain things that specialize in eating it. The world out there is very complex. Yeah, I don't doubt that. There, we know that uh, trees, uh, when they have certain uh, 
caterpillars on them will release chemicals into the environment that attract parasitic wasps that lay their eggs on the caterpillars. Uh, yeah, so you know, nobody's got a free ride, you know. Uh, surviving to adulthood and then reproducing is never certain in, in the animal well, in any part of the life forms. Uh, we do it pretty well. You know, we do it by manipulating our environment, which we are master. Well, I should say master, but we're good at it. That's why we went to cause us so many problems. <laughs> All right, so. So that's what they did. And here's a couple of graphs. You can look, you can see that this particular enzyme, its activity is measured at all these temperatures. Uh, this particular one happens to come from a, a pathogen, a human pathogen. And where is its optimum? Well, kind of right about here, isn't it? 37 degrees centigrade, that's body temperature. Well, it makes sense. A human pathogen is going to optimize on our body temperature, because that's where it wants to live. Why a fever helps you in part because you change that temperature. You raise it, and then they get them on this side of the curve over here. They don't do so well. Okay, uh, pH again, optimum pH. This one happens to be around seven. There are enzymes in organisms that live in uh, acid environments that have an optimum pH of around two or one and a half. I mean, they're going to vary depending on where the organism lives. Uh, and then substrate concentration. Okay, I got an enzyme, the more substrate I keep feeding in there, the faster it can go, the more it can make, until I reach a saturation point, and then it can't make anything any faster than it's already doing. And that's what this is showing you. As I add more substrate, its ability to make more of, of its activity, of its uh, product goes way up until I reach that saturation point, and then we're just working as fast as we can, and we can't go any faster. When proteins lose their normal shape, we say they're denatured. This is what you do when you fry an egg or you cook an egg. You denature the proteins in the egg white. That does not happen to be reversible. There are some of these that if you only go little ways and then you take them back to their normal condition, they will reform. Now, uh, we'll stop here. Back in vision, we'll pick up next week. Don't forget exam Monday. I know you won't, but just remind you.